Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. Today, my guest is Anthony Boutard, and we're going to be talking about his book, Beautiful Corn, America's Original Grain, from seed to plate. Corn, also known as maize, is one of the biggest crops in America. It's eaten raw, boiled, steamed, popped, broiled, ground up into flour, and even used for fuel. It is a key staple in many diets. It is also a grain domesticated by indigenous peoples in Mesoamerica in prehistoric times. In Anthony Boutard's book, Beautiful Corn, he takes a closer look at the history of corn, the botanical composition, and the culinary elements which make corn so loved. Quote, corn is remarkable among the grains because it is used as food from the emergence of the flower buds to the time the kernels are mature. Even among the dry, mature kernels, there is a range of colors, textures, and flavors. No other grain provides such culinary elasticity. So if you really are a true lover of not only good food, but love botanical nomenclature and love everything to, that there is to know about agriculture, you're going to love everything that Anthony has to say. So I would like to welcome to the show Mr. Anthony Boutard. Good That's afternoon. Good Wonderful to have you. Can you tell our audience about yourself? So I'm a market farmer in Western Oregon. I originally grew up in New England um, where... I uh, enjoyed sweet corn, and uh, it, 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 it was part of summer. It was that wonderful moment, that bitter-edge moment in summer, because it's right in August, and you know school's about to start, but there's this incredible food that's coming on, and we would eat it just out of the field. And then I'm, over the time, we've, my wife and I have moved to various places and finally established Shears Creek Farm, a market farm in, um, in Western Oregon, and we keep growing a bit of sweet corn, but uh, over time we started growing more and more um, of the grain corn, popcorn and, um, and flint corn in particular. And it, it, it situated itself nicely in my life. Um, it takes a bit longer, the grain corns in particular, to give you a lot of uh, leeway in when you harvest them. You can harvest them on a nice cool day in, in September or October. Um, at your leisure, you're not trying to struggle to get something out of the field very early in the morning so you can bring it to market uh, at the height of summer. So it's a, it's a more laconic lifestyle with with, mm. with grain corn. Now, how did you first, or how did you first? What was your first experience growing corn? I mean, was that something that you did as a child, or when you moved to Oregon, did you decide that you definitely wanted to begin farming? Oh no, we we uh, we we. I started growing corn as a child. Um, you know, around around you know a little bit over my parents' knees <laughs> and height. Um, you know, and they they did they grew corn in very traditional fashion in New England at that time, which was in hills with four seeds mm-hmm. per hill, and it was in the backyard of our garden. It was a, it was a family family garden, a vegetable garden, and we had many many hills of corn, and and uh, that's how I started. And when you became an adult, did you decide, yeah, something farming is definitely something that I want to continue, even if it is on a small scale level, or what happened then? Well, we started. Um, we were living in Portland, Oregon, at the time. It was my job was there, and um, I was I was actually in a community garden plot, and I and we just loved working in the community garden plot. Mm-hmm. And then one day I just said, you know, I really want to make this my life. I mean, it, it was my weekend, um, and my wife and I discussed it, and I was in a, kind of a high-pressure job and decided that I really, you know, we needed to shift out and, um, and have, a, have, a, have, a, have a, uh, a, a new outlook on life. And 
we started looking for a farm, and you never you never know exactly what sort of farm you're going to get. And ultimately, the farm has determined what crops we grow, mm. um, just the climate and the water availability and everything else. And so we we evolved with the land. Um, it's a very beautiful piece of land, so we're lucky. Um, but that's that's the sort of the progression, and uh, it it was you know actually surprisingly easy to ramp up from. 40, uh, 400 square feet to about 4 million square feet or whatever, 140 <laughs> yeah. acres. But you just sort of got to have a, an image of the land and say, okay, this is what we're going to do here, there. And there's a lot of natural areas on our farm. It's oak, savanna, and the wetland as well, which are just as valuable to me as the crop production areas. And how many acres did you start farming? We, 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 Initially. We're, we started about five acres of vegetables and then ramped up and we now have orchards and, and berry crops that comprise about 60 acres. So the two of us and I have a staff of four that work those 60 acres. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but it keeps you busy. Yeah. So our farm, we had 100 acres and we didn't farm the whole thing. We farmed uh, just, a, just a portion of it because we would uh, have our animals graze on the areas that we weren't uh, using or we weren't raising, uh, uh, we weren't using for hay. And, uh, you know, to actually farm produce, that's a lot of work. Now, when you first began the farm, if there are a lot of people that are out there listening that are interested in starting their own farms and in growing different vegetables that they feel would be quite enjoyable. What made you decide upon corn? Um, we, I actually saw a catalog entry in the High Mowing Seeds catalog because we were getting our, we, we, mm -hmm. we were a certified organic operation and they were organic seed um, pur purveyor, a seed house. And the, the, it, was, it was a very simple little statement, makes good cornbread. It was in the, their 2002 or 2003 catalog, in the 2003 catalog, and I went, you know, I haven't had good cornbread for ages. And somehow or another, the stuff in the box, the, the stuff that you get, even quote-unquote premium variety, I mean premium brands, just left me cold and I'd stopped eating cornbread. And I hadn't ever, you know, I hadn't thought about having mush for breakfast or anything, you know, just they just disappeared from our lives. And I went, you know, I need to, I need to try this. So we planted three rows, and it grew well, and it did make good cornbread, and it made really good corn mush or polenta, or whatever the porridge. Mm -hmm. And um, we never looked back. It was it, it, we sort of worked on figuring out how to grow corn, how to harvest it, how to mill it. Um, and then you know it's like like everybody else. Once you can fall in love with something like that, um, and I've, I've fallen in love with the plant from you know from the seed all the way up to a fully grown plant, then you know you you become obsessed by it, and then you write a book. <laughs> and that you definitely did. Now, just out of curiosity, when you bought the farm, was it all certified organic, or did you have to go through the certification process? We had to go through the certification process. Can you just take a moment and explain to our audience, especially for the folks that are outside the United States, exactly how long of a process that is and what you had to go through in order to ensure that your land was, in fact, worthy of the certification? Yes. The, the, um, first you apply for the certification, and then, it, then they require that you prove uh, on each part of the farm, wherever, wherever the certification is, and you can do it bit by bit if you have to, um, you, you, you need to prove that, that that land has not had any synthetic uh, materials put on it, either fertilizers, insecticides, herbicides, etc. Um, has been applied to that piece of land. And it takes three years. You've got to have a three-year period. And that's the legal framework, that three-year period. Um, and once you're through that, and they do soil tests, um, and they will advise you if there are certain crops you shouldn't grow there um, if there are pesticide residues. Fortunately, we didn't have that issue, but some farmers do. Um, but that was under the old system, so we've been certified before the uh, National Organic Program. 
But that three-year um, legal requirement is only the beginning. It takes, I think, about 10 years, 8 to 10 years, before you really recover the, the biotic community in your soil, the insects, the bee communities. I know you're very interested in bees, but, you know, we, the native bees as well as the, uh, as well as the, uh, the European honeybee. And it, so it takes a very long time to get back the pores in your soil, the, the, the deep texture. Many farmers who rely on chemical applications and uh, synthetic fertilizers really only farm the top four inches of the soil, and they really don't care about the rest of the soil. When you're an organic farmer, you've got to look down, you know, 24 to 32 inches. And well, I, definitely. I, the uh, macroorganisms, especially the macroorganisms and the microorganisms, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's what creates good, healthy soil. And as you know, uh, in order to keep that environment healthy, you have to feed it properly. And you have to be very, very gentle with the soil, mm. and that, and that, that's what's critical. Is, is, you know, when, when we can pull out, we we actually pulled out a parsnip one year that was one meter long, and I knew um, about forty-one inches long. I knew when I could pull a, a root out that long, that somehow or another I was doing the right thing to the soil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, just out of curiosity, when you decided the type of corn you were going to plant. Can you just explain that process of just selecting the type of corn? And, uh, I mean, how did you determine how much you were going to grow? And also the beginning of the growing season. I mean, the growing seasons are interesting because if you have inclement weather or if you have a cold spell, sometimes it will upset the, the, the uh, I guess, the whole uh, new season that, or the facilitation of, you know, the, the planting and everything. So, I mean, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's a, I describe it as sort of like it's a foot race. You really want to get out and not trip in your first 10 yards. Um, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 and, and the last two years, it's been horrible. It's been a, and, and that happens. Um, that's, just a, that's, a, that's a part of farming. Um, we, we had wet springs. I try to plant on the new moon, um, and that's old folk wisdom, but it's also... You know, nobody has ever ever uh, disputed the fact that the oceans rise and fall with the moon. I'm going to accept the fact that seeds uh, can have increased vitality with, with the lunar cycle. So mm. um, we always try to do that. It's always successful. So, um, so it's, 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 I'm, I'm happy with that approach. Um, and then you'll, you'll fight off crows. Um, you got to put up scarecrows sometimes. Uh, I made a mistake last year putting up a scarecrow that had... Um, I put some um, uh, glittery tape on, and I forgot that crows, that whole family loves, including Baltimore Orioles, love anything that glitters. Um, <laughs> and so, so they, they, they hung out with the scarecrow and said, hey, you know, this guy's really great. It's glittering. <laughs> um, he knows where all the food is at. <laughs> but uh, so that's the critical thing. And every year is going to be different. And that's a, I guess that's a, a pleasure of farming if you, accept, if, if you can accept that uncertainty. Um, but it does test your metal, and uh, some years you you can you can have you know horrible. We grow fruit as well, and anybody who's grown raspberries knows that raspberries just attract rain. As soon as they're ripe, ooh, it's raining. Um, That's it's a actually good been point. Raining this weekend, <laughs> so um, and our raspberries are ripe. Uh, so it's it's a challenge, but you 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 just have to accept it you you can't you, you can't change the weather and i think that it it takes a certain personality to to enjoy that so currently what varieties do you grow at the farm we grow a, a flint variety called Roy's Callis Flint it's, it's it comes from Callis Vermont um kind of midway up in the state and it, it was um kept in uh, kept uh, in, in good condition by a farmer called Roy Fair from Calais, Vermont, and uh, it's it's it's, a, it's what they call flint variety or northern northern flint variety, and it's a, it's a hard grained yellow kernel. Well, the, the 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 meal is yellow. The kernel can be either red or orange or yellow, and it's really a marvelous variety. I, I haven't you know I haven't decided to change that variety. Mm. Then we grow an old popcorn variety called 
It's called Pennsylvania Dutch Butter or Amish Butter. As I have to write it on the market sign, I call it Amish Butter. It's easier. Mm. Um, takes me less time in the morning. Uh, and it is, it is a wonderful popcorn. You don't need butter on it. You just could pop it up. But it also makes a very good hominy. We had our field day here yesterday, and we made a hominy salad um, using the Amish butter, which it was lovely, and I think people really enjoyed it. And then I'm growing, this year I'm growing out a uh, purple corn, um, huh. and it's, it's got a dark purple kernel, and it, it also has purple silks that stain your hands. They're really? Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Everything about the plant, it's got... It, 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 it has purple all over it. It should be almost called Easter corn because that's definitely the time of year when the, when the, the priests wear purple. Um, but it's, it's, it's that intense, almost Tyrian purple color. And it's not ornamental? It's, it's edible? Yeah, it's a flower variety, and it is edible. We're, we're going to try to make hominy from it um, and grind it as well. Um, I, I haven't had a chance to taste it. I, it, it, was a, it was a chance ear in the field. Um, and I've grown it out. It, so this is what happens with farmers. We can, we can, one, we can take old varieties and rework them and clean them up, and that's what we do with, with what we've done with the Roy's cow splint and the Amish butter. And we adapt them to our farm. And then the other way is we look out and we say, holy smokes, that's a pretty interesting ear of corn. And it's the only ear in, in the whole field that's different. And you go, I really want to grow a corn, that type of corn that looks like this. And then you replant it and you reselect the, the uh, plants that produce a similar ear, mm. and you do that over the years, and you get a new variety, and that's how Guatemalans and uh, and Oaxacans developed a lot of the early varieties was just doing that. It's a very simple process, um, and what's lovely about corn is it's a tactile plant. Uh, you know, with wheat or barley, you may ne- you know, never notice the variation in the field, but with corn, you go out there and you see it. You can see it in your back garden. You can see it out in the field. Uh, and it grew, it, it, corn, unlike a lot of the uh, Eurasian plants, corn grew in, a, uh, in, a, in, a, in an agricultural uh, uh, context where, where there, was no, there were no draft animals and no steel. So it's, it's a, kind of a handmade grain. I, I talk about it in the book a little bit about that. Um, it really it, you enjoy holding it and handling it. Plants too. Well, the the ears are very silky to the touch once you peel out the outer leaves. But uh, I just remember I haven't grown corn recently, but I just remember when I when I had uh, just even the corn silk. It's just very pleasurable to just handle. Yeah, it has a, it, 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 It's not wet, but it has a kind of sticky quality because it's got these tiny little little hairs on it and just yeah you can feel it clinging to your skin and uh, i guess they make a hand lotion out of corn soap too mm. now with the corn itself i'm just curious what is the market demanding as far as some of these more exotic varieties how how is it received i mean do you oh. find that the consumer market especially the conscious consumers that are looking for uh, the organic corn that is grown by people such as yourself who are true stewards of the earth, uh, that these varieties are more desirable, or do you think that it's uh, more of a specialty food where you know there's only a specific market for it? No, they're highly desirable. And uh, I, in fact, I have um, customers whose parents insist that they do not come home from, for the holidays without some of our corn. Um, that, to me, is the highest compliment. <laughs> they, they look at me and they roll their eyes. Do you have it yet? Um, we sell out. Um, we're essentially sold out of corn at this time of year. We're trying to build up our pop, you know, build up how much we grow. Um, but every year, the sales increase. So it's, it's, once people taste really delicious corn, um, cornmeal, um, or hominy, um, homemade hominy, it's hard to, uh, hard to go back. You, you, you really want to have that deep corn flavor. Well, especially and with the sweet corn. corns, there's just nothing like them. Oh, um, of course. And, yeah. I was going to say, and especially with the corn on the cob, you being from New England, I mean, uh, especially uh, the D.C. communities, corn on the cob, especially with the clam bakes and everything, usually if there's good corn, that's one of the things that people will talk about. They'll say, oh, yeah, you know, they had really good corn. And it's amazing how, how often you hear that. Oh, yeah, yes. 
No, it's a um, and 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 it, what's what's amazing about actually the, the flint corns in particular, but also some of the popcorns, is that they have gone all around the world. So in in Hokkaido, um, uh, on, on the island of Hokkaido in Sapporo, Japan, they actually grow an, an old type of. They're still growing an old type of flint variety, a real flint variety from New England called Longfellow, and it's 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 still cherished. It was brought there. It was brought into Italy. And, and parts of Spain, uh, and in and, and Pakistan, and you look at these old flint varieties, and often you can see them in tourist pictures and stuff. You go, holy smokes, they're growing an old flint variety. Um, they're very typical. You, once you once you understand the plant and know the plant, you you, you see it right away. Um, and they're cherished there in Italy. They, they the old eight row flint they call them maiz uh, autofile, uh, which means it, uh, it, uh, corn with eight rows. Um, those are cherished, um, and they claim them as their own, which sort of gets to me as an American. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they took the tomato, too. <laughs> oh, wow. Now, just out of curiosity, when it comes to growing popcorn, what are some of the physical attributes that people can recognize uh, so that when they see corn that they use for popping corn as opposed to uh, flour corn or just... Um, you know, the other varieties of corn that people tend to eat, you know, um, as a vegetable. Are, are there any significant differences in the actual physical appearance of the plant? Yeah, it's, it's mainly with the ear and the kernel. The, the ears are cone-shaped as opposed to a lot of, a lot of corn has, has what are called um, cylindrical ears. When you look at the ear, it's, it's the same, it's same um, diameter at the top and bottom. Uh, Popcorn varieties are conic as uh, the ears are conical, sometimes sharply so. They look like a pine cone, and um, so they, they have a decreasing number of rows as you as you look up that ear. The kernels are very small, and they ha and they're and the and the starch inside the, the what they what they call the starchy endosperm is packed with protein. It's actually very, um, popcorn is one of the more nutritious forms of corn, so it's, it's packed with protein, that, and that hardens the starches. And that also leads to that sort of explosive flaking that you get when you heat it in oil. But it's always a smaller kernel than either the flints, dents, or flower-type corns. And um, that's, th that's the reason it explodes. And it's also one of the most ancient forms of corn. The early, the early, the early um, races of corn were popcorn types. It's interesting that in, in America, the number three snack is actually popcorn. Uh, most people, for some odd reason, are surprised at that, but number one is potato chips, number two is pretzels, and then number three is popcorn. And I'm kind of surprised popcorn isn't number one, only because you see it at so many movie theaters, stadiums, and, excuse me, all sorts of events, not to mention at major uh, transportation hubs. Like in New York City, of uh, Grand Central Station, Penn Station, and you smell popcorn, and you can't avoid it. Uh, it it's also very effective, especially at different events, where if you smell the, that smell of freshly popped popcorn, you just can't resist. I mean, it's just such a delightful fragrance, and um, especially if you have the pleasure of enjoying freshly grown organic popping corn, uh, and it's just interesting how people really love their popcorn. Oh, yes. I'm always surprised that it isn't number one. But it's, uh, I think it has to do with the fact that a lot, of, a, a lot of corn is flavored, and some people like that, uh, but some of the older varieties, the newer modern varieties, the hybrids that they're, they're using for the flavored kettle-type corn, unfortunately, um, do not have great flavor. And so you really do have to go back to the older varieties, um, uh, uh, the, the Pennsylvania Dutch butter or Amish butter or the Japanese hullus or uh, some of the old classic popcorn varieties. And they have much better flavor, and, you, and they don't need the butter or the, the artificial flavorings put on them. And if, 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 every, if every popcorn grower grew Amish butter in this country, it would be number one, far past the potato, I'm sure. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. How many parts of the plant can be utilized, whether it's for food or otherwise? Pretty much the entire plant. Um, the, 
the cobs um, in traditional uh, in traditional New England households, they often re- reserve the cobs um, to roll hams in because the the ash is a very neutral, slightly salty ash. It's a it's a different ash than you would get from a from a tree, which will be, be smoky, and so it's a very neutral flavored ash, very light. Um, so they would roll the hams in, and that kept the insects and stuff out um, and protected the ham, and then they'd wrap it up. Uh, so the cobs were used in the, you know, there's corn cob pipes as well, but that's mm. a, a special variety. Um, we always put the cobs back on the ground because they add organic matter. They're, they're, they're harder, and they, and they add to the texture of the soil. Do you grind um, them? The, the stem itself is, is called stover, so after you've harvested the ears, if you have livestock you would feed the stalks to the uh, to the livestock um we used to actually give the uh, i'm sorry i was gonna say we used to give the uh we used to give the um the leaves on the corn on the ears of corn to the cows and they used to love that oh yeah and well and 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 you know, my staff um, who are Oaxacan use the leaves for um, tamales. I often have tamale makers come by because oh, we nice. have organic corn. And I have to be, uh, I'm kind of a little bit leery of some of them because they'll come in and suddenly strip your whole field. Uh, <laughs> so, but if I know them and know them well, I, I'll let them come in and take some some leaves. Um, so, that it, And then, as I said, the baby ears, the young ears before the uh, silks emerge, are uh, that's baby corn, um, and they're delicious. Um, uh, with the popcorn varieties, which often produce three or four ears on the plant, we'll take those lower ears off because they won't produce good kernels. Um, they often will be quite a bit later than the top ones, and we will we'll just uh, sauté them up in you know kind of stir fry, and fresh fresh baby corn, young corn um, before the silks have emerged, absolutely delicious, um, time consuming. So. I, it's not something we do commercially, but <laughs> it's it's always good if if you have if you have a popcorn ready. In fact, most of the um, uh, baby corns in the e- ears in the in the imported tins are um, actually popcorn varieties. Interesting. Um, can you also talk about uh, the dented flower corn types? Uh, can you talk about I guess what the difference is and what makes a good flower corn? Yeah, a, a, a flower corn's a softer, it has a softer kernel, so it doesn't have as much protein packed in. Mm. It's it's much easier um, to grind, and in in places, in particular in places where um, they didn't have uh, uh, they didn't have the tradition of making um, hominy, um, and they would grind the corn um, while it's dry. They there was a, the, the 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 flower corns were favored. Um, so you will find flower corns very commonly uh, in the Great Plains. And they didn't really have a good source of lime to make um, nixtamal, the hominy, the, base, the starting part, part for hominy where you put the alkaline in, um, because they didn't have the limestone and they didn't have the forests. So in, in, on the plains, they just didn't have a great source of ash. They had some willow ash, but, uh, but typically they favored, you, you'll notice out there that you, you, you get the development of the flower corns. In in um, Central and South America, flower corns are often used for hominy because they're, they're, it's a lighter kernel; it's not so chewy, and uh, people like uh, like that flavor. The dent corns are halfway between um, between the flint and uh, flower corns. It has some hard um, hard starchy endosperm and some uh, soft endosperm. Uh, and so it's right, you know, that's, it's in between. Most of the corn that's grown in the world is a type of corn called the uh, corn belt dent, and that's a dent type. Mm. And so probably 99% of the corn grown in the world is actually is a dent type, but it's a very highly derived type. It's not a, a not a a natural dent. Um, it was it was it was derived from interbreeding between the flint and flower types. Thank you. Now, when you are harvesting the corn, is there any type of special equipment that you use, or do you harvest it by hand? How do you go about harvesting your corn? Yeah, we do it by hand. We go out and we snap off the ear. Then we'll use a a nail. um, What what, what my staff prefers is a a 20-penny nail with a, um, they make a little loop, so it loops around their wrists. 
and and then put some duct tape on so it's padded. But you use that point and you split open the the husks. And once you get the husks split open, you can just peel it off very quickly. Mm. Um, for the backyard person, you just you can just go out and and strip off the husk. And it's that simple. It's it's, it's done by hand. It's the most efficient way we found. Um, particularly with the older varieties of corn, which are not as, um, as sturdy as the, as, as the dent corns, the, the industrial type. And that's it. You, you, need to, you need to be careful that it's dry, and not only mature but dry, because corn molds are a nasty bunch. When, you, when the corn is about to um, be picked, do you have any issues with any birds or any insects that also might be waiting for the corn to ripen? We don't. Um, we're lucky we don't have too many raccoons. Raccoons love sweet corn, and they love corn, so they, they, will, they will come into your cornfield. For the most part, the, the reason um, corn is so popular is it is resistant to birds. Um, it's, and, and that's why in many places in the world where they originally grew millet, corn has become the favorite grain there because you always shared millet with with the birds. Um, it's, it's the ideal bird food. But um, corn, you know, sitting there in that husk, that height husk, you don't have issues with birds. You may have uh, trouble. The most trouble you'll have is with a, a, an earworm or two in the corn husk, and oh. and that we just shake out and snap the tip off if we have to. Some of my friends that have grown millet that have told me about their bird issues. I tell them, I said, well, it's like growing catnip and not expecting the local cats in the neighborhood to uh, have a feast, you know? <laughs> no, exactly. I, I, just, I think uh, Pliny, the, old, the, the, the ancient Roman historian, noted that it was always, millets always grown in partnership with the birds. Yeah, I mean they they're gonna have they're gonna have their way one one way or the other, you know. But uh, so after you harvest the corn, can you just talk about the process? How many days does it take to harvest all the corn that you grow, and how do you store it? How do you transport it? It takes about two days for us with my crew, and then we we we. we, we in our case, because we're going a fair amount, we put it in a trailer on the tractor and we bring it under cover. And in Oregon, we don't have great drying weather in the autumn, so I have to continue drying it down. And this depends upon where you are in the country. Many places in New England, we never had any trouble drying the corn in mm-hmm. the field. But here, it takes longer. So we bring it under cover, and then we'll put it in trays so the, uh, with, um, with hardware cloth at the bottom of those trays, and that's, that's netting. And that allows the heavy moist air to drop out of the corn and fall down to the bottom of the, the floor of the barn. And, and we have them up on, on, on horses. So the final drying takes place there, just to make sure that we don't have any mold problems. We store it on the ear, so we do not take it off the ear until we're ready to grind it. And if you do it that way, the corn holds better and has better flavor and in fact, my crew steered me in that direction when they when they mentioned the fact that you get better germination. And then they said in in Mexico they always leave their corn on the ear until they're ready to plant it the next year. And they said you get much better germination. And they're right about that. In about four to five days, the corn's out of the ground. Whereas if you had it off the ear and in a seed pa- uh, seed bag, it would take probably three or four more days, and your germination would be a bit less. How much of the corn do you save for the next year's crop? We save about three times more than we will need to plant. And we do that because I want to make sure if there's a crop failure or or if there's a frost or that something Mm -hmm. happens, the crows get in, I have enough to replant. And then I always, because I've I've spent years working with this variety and shifting it and, and, and making sure it's adapted to our farm and all the pests and all the problems we have on our farm, I want to make sure I have a, 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 an additional buffer um, just in case, you know, bad stuff happens. It's always good to keep keep that. Uh, you, you get a little bit, a bit of a fuss budget as a farmer. You don't want to lose stuff. So I've always got piles and piles of, 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 of seed that I've saved. Um, better safe than sorry. Your, your seed is the most important thing you can hold on to. How long is the seed good for? It's good for approximately eight, ten years. 
particularly if it's left on the ear. And how, uh, where do you store the, the seed that's left on the ear? I mean, at, at a certain point, do you donate it? Do you, dis, do, you do something with it? Do you uh, compost it? What do you do? Oh no! Uh, um, we will we will grind it up and sell it. <laughs> ah, okay. It, 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 we 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 keep that that sort of three times what we need, and then we rotate through the other the the, the older stock. So I never keep my corn seed more than um, one year. And so if, if 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 that seed is not needed that year. We can by the, by the autumn by well actually by late summer I know if I need to um, hold on to it or whether I can grind it up. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, we're a commercial farm. I need to make money, so um, uh, we, we we make sure we we move it through. So out of all the approximately, how many tons of corn do you produce each year? And out of that total tonnage, what is the actual percent that that you save for? Uh, the next year's uh, the next year's crop. We produce, I would say, roughly two and a half to three tons of corn in grain in, in grain form, and then um, I will I will need about 150 pounds of that as seed. Oh, that's not really a lot at all. Yeah, it's not a lot. Yeah. So and don't forget each year, you know, each each kernel you grow produces about 200 kernels. So for people that are thinking about having an organic farm or even for people that perhaps, uh, and this has happened many times where uh, we've received correspondence from folks that have conventional farms and are contemplating making that transition, do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I, I I always recommend going around and looking at what your neighbors are doing, um, particularly if you got if you have a and it doesn't have to be a commercial farm. It can be a small a small backyard grower. And you know, drive around and you see somebody it's some corn and if you see them standing by the road they're picking up their mail or something, you know, ask them about it. Particularly if it looks interesting, um, and particularly if you notice last year they had kept it for seed and they it had gotten dry. Um, local knowledge is is of paramount importance to me, mm. and 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 sometimes you disregard it. And 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 in fact, I was advised that you could not grow grain corn in the Lamette Valley, and I disregarded that advice. But I had it in back of my mind, and I made sure that I didn't get caught flat-footed out there in the field with some problems. And made sure it was a very short-season corn because we're at very high latitude. Um, so local knowledge, I would say, is probably the most important. Um, Thing, and particularly uh, important information, and particularly from people who have been doing it for a long time. And uh, so you, you, you just watch as you're driving around. Um, if you're thinking about green corn, that would be my advice. Watch, see what other people are doing, what, what's their, their pace. Thank you. And do you have uh, any particular uh, foods that you like to make? I know that in the book there are a number of recipes, but... Is there anything that you just really love about corn that you'd like to just share with the audience? Yes, I almost every morning for breakfast I have um, uh, corn mush that's fried up. So I'll 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 I'll, I'll boil up a big pot of corn mush, and then um, after you know after it's cooled down put it in the refrigerator and then every morning i scoop some out and put it in the frying pan that's the most satisfying breakfast i have and and if i forget to make it the day before i, I i'm kind of in a pussy mood all day um, <laughs> i like that better than toast or anything else and i'll have two fresh egg uh, freshly boiled eggs soft boiled eggs put on top and make a little puddle in the corn and the, the yolk and the corn it's just it's just to me i can have that every day of my life forever and ever so can you share some of your culinary secrets as far as how you make your corn mush, what the measurements are? Yeah, it's, it, with us it's one, one part corn to three parts water. And it doesn't matter how much you make. Um, I start with cold water, I'll mix it, stir it up, and then, um, and then just gradually bring it up to the barest simmer, and then we'll just turn the stove down um, and cook it for about an hour, an hour and a half. Um, it depends on your, your preferences. 
because I put it in the refrigerator and let it cool down, I don't cook it quite as long. Um, but it's very, very simple. You know, you, there there's all sorts of um, uh, uh, rituals associated with making polenta. So once you call it polenta, and it, it porridge in Italian, then you've got to do all this other stuff. And I think <laughs> you have to wear a black shawl. But in um, but if if you're if, if you're in New England or in Oregon, you can just put the, put it in the pot cold, st- stir it up, and then heat it. Um, that that initial heating is critical. You just got to keep stirring it until it's good and almost to a boil. Then you can turn it down and come back in every 20 or 30 minutes and stir it. When you heat it up the next day uh, or whenever you prepare it, do you add anything to it? Do you add maple syrup? Do you add butter? Any Anything that you add to it? Yeah, I'll put a little bit of butter in the, in the skillets to keep it from sticking. Um, and then I, I, I actually take it out with, a, I take a fork and scratch it out so it's in little sort of almost curd-like things. And then I and then I'll fry it that way, and I can shake the pan, and, and I, that's how I like them, you know, in little little bits. I don't like it in a patty form, um, but other people like prefer it as a patty that's put on the pan. But um, yeah, just a little bit of butter, a little bit of salt as I'm eating my eggs. But the eggs do the trick. I don't need anything sweet. I'm not a sweet person. I'm not. I don't eat a lot of sweets. So. Of course, you're a sweet person. You wrote a book about <laughs> corn, <laughs> sweet corn. <laughs> Um, every pun intended. Uh, we have a question from the audience. This is coming from Richard. Uh, he'd like to know, what crops do you rotate the corn with? We will rotate through uh, with a legume. We want to avoid any grass crops. Um, so that would be wheat, uh, barley. Um, and we want to stay out of areas that have a lot of grass in them because the same pests that will eat the roots of corn will eat the roots of other grasses. Um, so that that's one we we our rotation is approximately uh, a crop every five years of corn. So we we we, we the, the four years in, in in the interim we we have in some other crop. But usually we follow follow the, the corn follows the legume because you've got the additional nitrogen and corn's a pretty heavy feeder or likes likes the additional food. Um, and. Uh, it, 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 sometimes we also will rotate it in with, well, uh, part of the rotation will be uh, chicories. We grow a lot of chicories for greens, for winter yeah. greens. And chicories are very deep-rooted. Uh, they'll, they'll grow down several feet into the ground, and they, they change the soil. And it's actually, when you've, been having, when you've grown chicory on the land, you notice it's a much better, much finer soil. Um, and something about the exudates in the ro- roots, and how it grows, and it also, because it has big, thick roots, it adds a bunch of organic matter. So I like to have that as part of the rotation, the steps to, to getting the soil ready for corn. And then afterwards, often we let the, the, the leave it, uh, uh, land go fallow for a year. I, I, I try to let all of my, or at least one season, depending upon the patterns that emerge on the farm. Um, I, I like to just let the soil relax. Um, you know, you, if, if the soil, if you're pushing it too hard, the soil gets uh, tense, and you mm. can feel it. It, it, it. it doesn't doesn't break apart. It's not got the tilt. Um, so it's good to let that that either winter or or, or a summer crop, it just or a, a cover crop, and it can be weeds. I, I weeds are cover crops that you don't have to pay for. Um, <laughs> exactly. So I and I, you know, I just remind people that they're they're what people, what people call weeds. In fact, I don't use the word at all in the book. What people consider weeds are are often very very nutritious plants. Plants like purslane plants, like pigweed or lamb's quarters, are very good to eat, and we harvest them and we sell them. Speaking of which, we have a question from Layla. She she wrote in, I'm really enjoying your interview. Do you sell the corn that you grow? I guess do I she sell means it? That, I, I guess she means do you have a website where you sell your flour and your popcorn? I I, I, I sell it locally. Um and my the purpose of this book is really to encourage uh, people to find and find local farmers or encourage local farmers to to grow grow corn because I think it's it's I can't grow corn for the, for the whole country I can barely grow enough for 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 my customers and restaurants that I <laughs> sell to in Oregon so we don't I don't sell it um, outside of the farmers market in my restaurant trade 
Thank you. Uh, I think that follows the same uh, the same way of thinking that uh, Joel Saladin speaks of as far as selling locally and organically. Uh, that you should try to you know support the local farmers and the local economy by uh, purchasing from them because it's so incredibly important, uh, especially to keep the economy strong. Uh, yeah, and encourage farmers to do it and meet those market needs. That's very important. The next question is from Jeff, and he'd like to know uh, what prompted you to write this book at this particular point? Well, I think corn has gotten a bad rap. Um, and, and people, there's kind of an ugly side to corn, and I'll, I'll, but, it's, but it's an industrial side, and it has to do with the fact that it seems whenever we have have excess from excess capacity from our war making uh, apparatus, we, we we apply it to growing more corn, and and really it was that's what's happened. Following the Civil War, all the steel implements um, replaced the the hand labor and, and started the mechanization process. In World War One, we had all the um, synthetic um, ar- armaments. The, um, with synthetic nitrogen and synthetic phosphorus, and nowhere to go, so we we apply it to our fields. Um, the chemical weapons of, of of World War II were applied. All that chemist, all those chemistry lessons were applied to the cornfield, and now genetic modification and, and herbicides like uh, 2,4-D are coming back. Um, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a it's 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 a wrong mindset in my mind, and so I try. I wanted to sort of shake people off a bit and say, look, there's this beautiful plant there. It's an old plant. It's, it's American. It's, 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 you know, more, more American than apple pie because, you know, it, it, apples came from Azerbaijan. So it's, it's, if, you want to, if you're seeking something that belongs in this country and should be treated respectfully, corn is it. Thank you. Next question is from Ray. Uh, I'm assuming this is Ray female. Um, she would like to know, do you have any recommendations for freezing corn so it doesn't have that freezer burn taste? We've increasingly, when we freeze vegetables, and this applies to all vegetables, peppers, corn, um, I freeze them on um, in, in sort of an oven tray or an open tray, and we do this with green beans as well, and then I pack them into a uh, four-gallon uh, food-grade plastic um, uh, bucket, and they will. And 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 then we can just pull out a scoop or a handful. But those buckets are much better than um, those hard plastic buckets are much better than plastic bags. So we don't. We we found that we, that eliminates these. And it's true with fruit too. If you use those plastic buckets, you won't get the same freezer burn issues uh, that you get with polyethylene. Polyethylene um, breeze, uh, lets water vapor pass through. Those hard buckets don't. And that's freezer burn is a drying process from the, the, the refrigerator or freezer. Thank Does you. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> uh, next question is from Susan. She'd like to know, have you ever made your own alcohol from the corn that you grow? No, I haven't. Um, you know, I briefly looked into it, and I realized that all of the bourbon and sour mash in this country seems to be mostly cane sugar, with some corn added. And I, so I, I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time researching it. And I just, it, 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 I decided that if I was going to do it, I'd, I'd use my plums because it's, it, it's, I think, a better use of the plums than of the corn. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't know enough about alcohol manufacture. Always interesting. I mean, I just love the questions that come from the audience. Uh, now, can you just tell our audience, uh, in regards to your actual farm, do you give farm tours? Um, do you do anything like that at all? Yeah, we have, um, for our customers, we have an open house every year. We actually had it yesterday. So we one of the dishes we serve to our customers, um, we always try to have a snack at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the day, was a... Um, was actually a hominy salad um, made from our Amish butter popcorn, and so we we, we cooked it in the lime um, for about 40 minutes to an hour. Um, had it at a low simmer, and then we we cleaned it up, and then we we, we boiled it um, as hominy until it was tender, and 
We added some sliced onions, some uh, limes, uh, lime juice, and lime zest, and then uh, a lot of different greens that we picked from the farm. So it was um, purslane and and uh, and, and uh, amaranth or pigweed, and uh, and some orac, and we and we wilted those in, in, in a little bit of salt and vinegar, and then added that to the salad, and it all disappeared. So it was <laughs> apparently very good. We had about 80 people. And we have, I have, from time to time, organized groups. We don't do individual tours because, as I, as I noted, it's a commercial farm, and we're trying to, um, trying to make money here as well as um, educate people. Um, but it's very important for us that our customers know where their food you know, is grown and how it's grown, and they can see it. Um, so we do that every year. I think that's wonderful, and especially the dish that you, des- that you just described is definitely not something that you're going to see in a fast food restaurant or uh, in some processed frozen dinner. I mean, that's what it's about. It's about organic food created by the people that are actually growing the food and taking the responsibility for producing high-quality food that is really important for your health. And uh, it sounds absolutely lovely. Yeah, it was fun. It was also all from the field. They could see everything growing, the young corn plants, everything. They could see, and, and then when it came back to the back to the the, the the table, they saw they saw that food sitting there on the table. Anthony, it has been wonderful having you on the show today. Uh, once again, the name of the book is Beautiful Corn, America's Original Grain from Seed to Plate. Uh, just out of curiosity, what is the next book? Oh, you know, I think it, I, 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 I want to write a book about prunes um, because I think prunes is another neglected crop, um, the most wonderful food. Um, so maybe if I, if, I, if, if I have enough time in the next couple of years, I'll work on the prunes and restore its <laughs> reputation. Um, I really appreciate talking to you, June. It's been fun, and, and uh, I'm, I'm glad I had the chance to be on your show. Thank you so much, Anthony, and thank you, everyone, for all the questions. And, you know, this it's the summertime, and when you're out and about and you see a local farm that has freshly grown organic corn, think of Anthony and his family. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon, everyone. <laughs>